morning. I'm Lisa Williams, and our scripture reading today is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 19. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ took place. When Mary, his mother, was engaged to Joseph, before they were married, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. Because he didn't want to humiliate her, he decided to call off their engagement quietly. This is the word of God for the people of God. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thank you, Lisa, for our scripture lesson this morning. And I want to say a word of thanks to our worship band again. Wow. <clears throat> Help us. So bless us. It's always a tremendous blessing that they give to us through their music and their, their talents that they're willing to share for us. So thank you again for doing that. Hopefully, uh, when you came in, you got a handout, a bulletin-like thing that uh, told you about some of the things that are going on in our church. we got a lot of things happening, so uh, make note of those things that you can get involved in and uh, participate with us through this Christmas season. i got some new services that are happening this year, too, so it's going to be uh, exciting about that. But we also have a study guide that I encourage you to take home and read this week and make reading God's Word a daily part of your life. Uh, what a blessing it comes when we just stay in God's Word and God speaks to us in ways that... You don't really anticipate, <clears throat> but uh, we're going to be following the themes of what we've been talking about today, and then there's a place there for you to make some notes this morning, too, if the Spirit prompts you to do so. Uh, let us pause for a moment of prayer as we ask for God's Spirit to lead us in this time. Gracious God, I just ask now that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts here in this place, be led by your Holy Spirit in a way that not only they're acceptable to you, God, but that all of us are drawn to a closer relationship with you today. Shape us, God, and the people you call us to be through the power of your word and your spirit. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're, uh, con- we're continuing with a series of sermons that we began <clears throat> last week, and we're looking at Christmas through Joseph's eyes. And uh, hopefully through this uh, series, you're, you're going to be learning some things that maybe you didn't know about Joseph. And uh, that's kind of fun. I always learn new things. But we're really focusing on the question, what does Joseph's story have to teach us about our lives and about God's will for our lives? Now, when it comes to Joseph, most people just kind of brush over him when you get to the uh, story, the New Testament story, the birth of Jesus, because the truth is there's not really much there in the Bible about Joseph. I mean, the truth is there's not even one sentence, one word that's attributed to Joseph actually speaking anything in our Bible. He's kind of one of those silent figures there. But we want to know why. Why did God choose this man, Joseph, to be the earthly father of his son, Jesus? And what did Jesus learn from his earthly father, Joseph? Ultimately, what do we learn from Joseph? So that's what we've been focusing on. And one of the places that we learn about Joseph uh, is through the strange way that Matthew begins his gospel. In an effort to tell us about Jesus, Matthew begins his gospel with Jesus' genealogy. Now, Anytime you come to one of those genealogy sections in the Bible, whether it's the Old Testament or New Testament, most people kind of yawn. They go, oh, skip over that. <laughs> because you, not only can you not pronounce most of the names <clears throat> that are there, I mean, it's just, it's just boring, right? All that whole list of names. I think there's like 51, 52 names that were listed here in this genealogy. Uh, but it's, we just skip over that. But I want to suggest to you this morning that um, maybe we don't need to do that so quickly with this passage because uh, we tend to do that in Matthew's Gospel as well. We get here, we just skip down the really good stuff <clears throat> when uh, we skip over that genealogy. But I think we can learn some very important things from this genealogy of Jesus. 
First of all, we learn that Jesus is a direct descendant uh, to King David because Joseph, well, his father was a direct descendant. Some people say, well, how can you make that connection? Because Jesus wasn't really Joseph's real son, right? Uh, well, truth is, you know, when we adopt uh, a child into our family, they become part of our family tree. That's something you see happening throughout Scripture all the way back to Abraham and Sarah when they adopted Ishmael. He became part of uh, the family as such. But, but I think there's a whole lot more here than trying to explain this link that Jesus is linked to King David and to Abraham ultimately. Because when you read this genealogy, you discover that this is really a Reader's Digest version. <clears throat> um, when you really try to trace what Matthew does, and you look at that with the New Old Testament, you realize he's skipping multiple generations when he retraces the genealogy of Jesus. And yet, he includes four names that you wouldn't think would be included. And it just so happens these four names I'm talking about are the names of four women. That's not that women were not included in genealogies in that day and time. <clears throat> but generally speaking, they pretty well traced the genealogy of people through um, men because it was a very patriarchal society. But, um, you know, Matthew intentionally includes these four women. Well, I think there's a, a reason for that. The four women are Tamar, uh, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah. These are the four women that you see in this genealogy leading up to actually the fifth woman being Mary. <clears throat> so uh, the question for us, obviously, is why? Why is um, Matthew including these four women in Jesus' genealogy? And I want to deal with that for just a moment because I think we discover something really significant here. Uh, Matthew does not include women that you would expect him to include in the genealogy. He didn't talk about Abraham and Sarah or uh, uh, Jacob and Rachel or Isaac and Rebekah. He includes these women. So let me remind you very briefly of these, who these women are. Tamar was um, forced into playing the role of a prostitute uh, after her son died in order for her to have children so that she would have a future. Then you have um, Rahab, who was a prostitute living in the city of Jericho, who actually um, harbored the Israelite spies <coughs> when they came over to um, scope out the promised land before they actually went to conquer it. And, th and then you have Ruth, who was a Moabite, and she was grieving tremendously after the death of her husband. She moves to Bethlehem. It's a beautiful story of how she offered herself to a man there who eventually becomes her husband and, and takes care of her so that she would have a future. And then there's this woman called the wife of Uriah. Now, Matthew doesn't even say her name, but we know who she is. This is Bathsheba he's talking about. And you know the story. Uh, King David is walking on this roof of his palace one day, and he sees this woman bathing, and he becomes infatuated with her. Uh, this woman is uh, the wife of Uriah, who is one of the, the generals in his, his army. He's out fighting battles for him. But because King David is a king, he thinks he can take and do whatever he wants to do, and so he takes her. And so you have this abuse of power. You have this act of adultery going on. And, and then King David, to make matters worse, he ends up killing uh, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, on the battlefield, has him killed by sending him to the front lines unprotected. Now, these are four women that you really would think that if you're going to skip anybody, if you're going to leave anybody out of your uh, uh, lineage or your genealogy, it would probably be these four ladies. I mean, this is probably not the kind of people you'd want to include in your life story. But in Matthew, he, he leaves out a whole bunch of other people. Why does he include these, these women? Well, these are women who 
had experienced a lot of pain. These are women who had been humiliated. They had been uh, left shameful. Um, they had been left broken lives. They just a lot of um, difficult things were going on in their life. And yet they are included in this story of God's redemption that came to fruition in Jesus Christ. And that's why I think we don't need to skip over this genealogy so fast, this part of the Christmas story. Because some of us here in this very room have experienced tremendous pain in our life. Uh, Two of these women had lost their husbands. Uh, Two of them were prostitutes. One of them had to sell herself in order to have a future. Another one experienced sexual abuse. Uh, Yet God says to these women, I still love you. I can, I, can, I can redeem these women who have experienced humiliation and, and they're ashamed of what is in their past. And I can take these people and renew their life because I love them. They are precious. They're special to me. Even though everything they encountered or whatever they did, I can still use them and make something good out of them. So part of what I want you to hear from this part of the Christmas story is that whatever your situation is in life, no matter how terrible it and awful it may have been, God looks at you and he says, you are my daughter. You are my son. You are my child and I love you. And even the most ugly and the most painful parts of our life, God can take those things and God can, can make something good emerge out of that. If we... Allow him to. So we sometimes hear that song that we sing, God makes beautiful things out of dust. And God does, because that's who God is. That's what he does. And so God can take those broken parts of our lives. He can redeem those things. He can bring good out of them if we will entrust those part of our lives to him. And I, I think if we were honest with ourselves, any of us could look back on our lives and we could reflect on how in those moments when we took those broken uh, moments of our lives, those times when we experienced great pain or even tragedy, and we entrusted that to God to somehow work it all out, we see how God used those things to shape us into the people we are today. The best thing about you may have come from some of the most painful things that experienced in your life because they were redeemed by God over time. And all of this, I think, leads us to the story that we have before us today in our passage of Scripture. Mary and Joseph are engaged to be married. And now Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant. And he's not the father. In verse 18, we read, When Mary, his mother, was engaged to Joseph before they were married, she became pregnant. And he goes on to say that this happened as a result of the Holy Spirit upon her. Um... And undoubtedly, Mary had tried to convince Joseph that this was the case. But just put yourself in Joseph's shoes here. I mean, my wife and I, we just celebrated 38 years of marriage a couple days ago. And I'm thinking back to the time when we were engaged to be married. And if Marie would have come up to me and said, hey, Ricky, I got some news. I'm pregnant. But don't worry. The Holy Spirit did it. So, I mean, it's all going to be good. It's going to be wonderful. And I'm trying to imagine, you know, I'm being 18 years old or so, and I'm thinking, you know, gosh, you know, would I have believed her if she'd have said that? Would you believe your fiancé if she'd have told you that? I don't think so. <clears throat> you know, neither did Joseph. Uh, now, to help you really appreciate what's going on in this story, I want to give you some information about how Jewish weddings and marriages took place 
uh, back in the day of Joseph and Mary. So I think it sheds some light on the significance of what's going on here. Typically, marriages in that day uh, happened because the parents arranged the marriage when the children were young. And if that didn't take place, there was a matchmaker who brought uh, families together. But uh, we had Joseph's family and he had Mary's family who had made this arrangement between themselves that when their children got of age, they would be married. And, um, you know, when, when you, this was a non-binding agreement. I mean, it, it, didn't, it wasn't really binding and that. Things could change. But when you reach that stage of engagement, then things got much more serious. Um, the girl was engaged to be married at that stage around the time when she reached puberty. And then one or two years after that, they were married. That's kind of how it worked out. So <clears throat> when the engagement happens, the groom's family is required to pay a price for the bride. Uh, so the, the groom's uh, father would give money to the bride's family, and this was called uh, mohar, the mohar. Um, you know, I, normally it was a pretty, pretty hefty sum of money. I mean, one commentator says that it could have been the equivalent of a one-bedroom home in that day and time. So the father of a, of a son would have had to save money all along so to ensure that his, his son was able to, to buy a wife, basically to, to pay for a wife with a mohar. <laughs> and, uh, and the reason they did this is because the bride's family was going to be losing a member of their family that helped out and took care of things as a, as a daughter. And so this was to replace that loss. But often what happened with this mohar is that the, the bride's father would take a percentage of that and they would set it aside for the bride in case something happened to the husband. Maybe he would leave her, they would divorce, or they would die prematurely. So it was like a savings account or a security that was offered for the bride, uh, the daughter, in case uh, the husband left in some way. And in addition to the mahar, the groom was required to offer some money to the bride. <laughs> this was called the uh, matan. It's, it's, it's kind of like uh, what happens when uh, the, the groom offers his the uh, fiance a, a, a wedding ring. Now, if something goes bad in the relationship, you know, things don't work out, or what happened? Does the bride give the wedding ring back? Heck, no! <laughs> you know, to keep the wedding. That's hers to keep to do what she wants, right? Well, um, that's how it worked out also with the matan. This was the bride's money given by the uh, the groom, and it was hers to keep. So you have those two exchanges taking place. All of this happens as part of the engagement process. And then uh, something else also happens when it gets really serious. They would have entered into a legal binding agreement called the ketubah. Uh, the ketubah was much like a, a marriage license is for us today. And that's actually a picture. Uh, there's kind of a drawing. It's kind of a, some of them put it up on their, their, uh, their uh, walls and stuff. It's an ornate kind of document. It's much like the uh, wedding certificates that we have in marriage today. But in this ketubah, this is where the groom enters into a legal binding agreement, pledging and committing that he's going to do all these things to take care of this woman, that uh, he's going to take care of her, he's going to provide for her. Actually, in most ketubahs, they list out the responsibilities in detail that the groom is agreeing to do uh, for this, this bride. And this is actually still how things happen today <laughs> in Jewish weddings. Although today, most of all this takes place in the actual marriage ceremony instead of during the engagement process. But notice that all of this belongs and is given to the woman. Uh, in that society, this was a way of protecting women. Uh, in the event that the husband left her or that things didn't work out or that for some reason he did not honor the things that are spelled out in that ketubah, 
then actually in there, it, it's, it, it spells out that uh, he has to pay her the moha and the matan. Both of those are owed to her no matter what. If he doesn't pay them or the, bride, or the groom's family doesn't pay them, a lien can be established against the, the guy's uh, income until he does. So this was a way of protecting uh, women in the society. And the only way that this agreement could be abolished is if the woman was unfaithful to her husband. So all of this had taken place for Mary and Joseph prior to the scripture passage that we're reading today. So the Mohan had been given, the Matan had been given, they had signed this uh, ketubah between each other, but now Mary comes to him and says, I'm pregnant and you're not the father. Joseph indication he's utterly devastated over this as any man would be uh, he's, he feels humiliated he feels betrayed so what is Joseph going to do well typically what would happen in this circumstance is that he would make this known publicly in order to protect in his own honor <clears throat> he would go to the priest and make it known there he would go to his family and make it known there he might even go to the public square and announce it to the people to protect his own honor and defend his honor but that's not what Joseph does Here's what we read. The text says, Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. Because he didn't want to humiliate her, he decided to call off their engagement quietly. Mary tries to convince Joseph that this is the work of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't believe her. Uh, She looks him in the eye and she says, Joseph, I swear to you, this is what has happened. He says, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying. At that moment, he he just couldn't accept it. He he couldn't believe that this was what has taken place. And yet, you know, they're living in a pre-scientific age, but they know how babies are made in that day and time. I mean, so he, he understands what's what's probably happened here. He doesn't believe it. But the way that he responds to Mary really gives us some insight into Joseph's character. According to Deuteronomy chapter 22, what is supposed to happen if a woman who is engaged to a man has a child or gets pregnant from somebody else, what's supposed to happen is this. Deuteronomy 22 says, She shall be brought to the door of her father's house, and there the men of the town shall stone her to death. She has done an outrageous thing in Israel by being promiscuous while in her father's house. You must purge this evil from among you. Now, during the first century, the time of Mary and Joseph, um, this was practiced. It was not always done. It really was kind of the, um, the two families made that decision together. But um, uh, sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't. But at the very least, she would have been disgraced publicly. Uh, she would have been considered to be a harlot for the rest of her life. Uh, no man would want to marry a woman like this. So this was her future. Yet Joseph says, I'm not going to expose her to that kind of humiliation despite the fact that she's broken my heart. Despite the fact that she has betrayed me and, and you know, broken my trust and hurt me in this way, I'm not going to seek revenge. To divorce her quietly meant that publicly he would say to his priest, family, and everybody else, I'm not happy with this woman. I don't want her. That's what it means to, um, to divorce her quietly. And this meant that Joseph was going to take the blame for canceling the engagement. I mean, Joseph was the one who is going to break off the engagement. 
So not only was he going to take the blame for breaking off the engagement, but um, when Mary began to show uh, being pregnant, everybody was going to assume that Joseph had slept with her prior to being married, and he decided he didn't want her. And he leaves her with this child now to, to raise on her own. So, you know, Joseph ends up being the bad guy in this, in this story. You see what's going on? What kind of guy does something like that, right? And, you know, Joseph, he's going to end up being the bad guy in the story. Uh, and in addition to that, he is, uh, she's, she's going to be owed the mohar and the matan. I mean, she's going to get to keep all this money. So Joseph is going to walk away from this with his reputation trashed. And she's going to be able to have a second chance at life. What do you call something like this? You call it grace. You call it mercy. You call it forgiveness. This is truly a remarkable story that takes place. Next week, we're going to be looking at how Joseph gets his visit from an angel, convincing him that Mary's telling the truth. But right now, he doesn't believe that. I mean, he is convinced that Mary has had an affair with another man and she's pregnant from this guy. Yet still, he offers her grace. Mercy and forgiveness. Unbelievable. (laughs) Astounding. And yet, for any of us here who have experienced betrayal, um, an affair in our marriage, uh, unfaithfulness, brokenness in a relationship, this is the only path toward possible healing and restoration to take place. Not all, not all relationships can um, recover from something like this. But if it is going to have the chance to recover, if we can have the chance to move on in our lives, this is the only path. Forgiveness, mercy, grace. Unfortunately, unfaithfulness is something that is um, all too common in our society today. <clears throat> As a pastor, I've seen innumerable marriages broken uh, because of in, um, infidelity or unfaithfulness to one another. And... Many don't move on from such betrayals, but a lot do. And among those who do, I have seen this common, these common elements as a part of that moving forward together and experiencing what we're talking about. First, some of the things are couples who, who after they, it becomes known that there's been this unfaithfulness act in the marriage or relationship, uh, they start going to church. I mean, they're so broken by this, they just don't know where else to turn, and so they just start going to church. In other words, they turn to God and ask for his help in the midst of this time. And so finally, God has a way of helping to work that out. The second thing that brings healing to such situations is that they seek out counseling to help them understand what happened and what steps might can be taken to possibly reconcile this relationship if both of them are willing to do that together. Thirdly, uh, they both make a commitment to work on their marriage. Uh, they earnestly both commit to doing everything they can, giving it their all, and all these other relationships are ended. The ones outside the marriage, ending all outside relationships. Fourthly, <clears throat> the one who has had their trust betrayed, um, they, uh, they hear from the one who uh, committed the act of unfaithfulness, they hear the... Um, repeated remorse 
and the reassurance given over and over again over a long period of time that I love you, I'm committed to you, I'm going to be here, we're going to work this out. Because the one whose trust has been betrayed needs to hear that over and over again. Finally, those who are able to move forward from a circumstance like this practice forgiveness. Forgiveness. That is, they, they make the decision to see each other as being flawed human beings. And they relinquish their right to retaliate. I mean, this is what Joseph does. Now, most of us have not experienced um, an affair in our marriages, but all of us have been hurt by another. We have experienced betrayal of our trust, wounded by others. And when brokenness occurs in a relationship, forgiveness is perhaps the most important step that we can take toward finding the possibility of healing and restoration. Whether the relationship survives or not, forgiveness is that step that we take toward healing. As um, it has been said, forgiveness is often the gift that you give yourself so that you're not destroyed by things and other people around you are not either. Well, this is what we see in Joseph. Even though he's in this situation where he believes that his uh, fiance has had an affair with another man unfaithful to him, we see Joseph offering grace, mercy, and forgiveness. We see it a powerful way in this story of Mary and, and Joseph. But I have to wonder, I wonder if Jesus saw this in his father Joseph in other ways growing up. I wonder if this had an impact upon the one who became known as saying, forgive, not just seven times, but 70 times seven. I wonder how much this influenced uh, the one who taught us to pray. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Or the one who hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So the lesson we have from Joseph today is that we are called to be people who are filled with grace, mercy, and forgiveness. People who don't wish bad upon those who hurt us, but rather wish good. We try to work toward that goal. Because when we live in this way, we find life. It's the only way to find healing. And often it's the only way to find hope. I want to invite you to pray with me this morning. God, as we come to this moment of breaking bread together, around your table, we are reminded that you gave us that supreme example of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. How thankful we are for that. And you look upon us today and you see all that we have done, all the ways we fall short, the times when we have strayed from your path, the, the actions we've done to hurt, or at least have brought pain into other people's lives. Lord, please forgive us. How grateful we are for the words of the psalmist that reminds us and describes your forgiveness as being as far as the east is from the west. You forgive our sins. How grateful we are for Jesus who offered himself as atoning sacrifice for our sins in a way that might heal us and restore us. So God, we pray that you would help us to have that same heart within us 
to be gracious, to be merciful, just as Joseph was. Help us to remember that today as we bring ourselves to receive these elements. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, we remember how at the Lord's table, he gathered with his disciples in that upper room. And there was Judas there. Um, We know how all the disciples betrayed him left him, and I can imagine hanging on that cross, seeing all that. He was hurt. And yet Jesus knew all that was coming, and still he offered grace, he offered mercy, he offered forgiveness. And that's the same gift he offers to us today. As we remember how Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and all of us fall short of the glory of God, and we're in need of that. And we remember how Jesus took bread in that moment together with them. He broke it. He gave it to them saying, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Whenever you do it, remember what I have done for you. What I've made possible for you. And we remember how after supper he took a cup. And after blessing it and giving thanks for it, he said, drink from this, all of you. For this represents my blood that was poured out for you and for all, for the forgiveness of your sins, to wash you clean. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. As Christians, we take on this yoke of being the grace of God for others. Sometimes we fall short of that. So today is a moment where we come to remember and reflect upon what God's done for us, but also how we are called to be of the same mind of Joseph and of Jesus to one another. Let us pray. Gracious God, we ask that you pour out your Holy Spirit on these elements of bread and juice that as we partake of them, they become the body and blood of Christ for us in a way that helps us to share in the body and blood of Christ, that we might be that presence and grace and mercy of God to the world. God, make us one with Christ, one in service together, one in our love for you and for one another. These things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to ask those who will be assisting me to come forward at this time.